Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. She's Anne Friedman. She's Ami Natuso. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Do you want me to do the agenda? Yes. Oh, oh my God. Let's yes. Do it. I love. I love this trading spaces that's happening today. <laughs> me too. Um, on today's agenda, we have a very special books episode with some of our favorite her historians about three American icons: Harriet Tubman, George Washington, and McDonald's. Is McDonald's an American icon? McDonald's? <laughs> McDonald's is that girl. I'm not saying you have to like the food, but the brand penetration is lit. It's how you know other countries have democracy. I'm like a agnostic on the food, but uh, as a brand, the arches, like, iconic. Strong branding. Strong branding. All of these historians have uh, recently published books, but I also think about this episode as like just an appreciation in general for the work that female historians are doing, and these historians are doing in particular, to aspects of American life, some figures in American life that have been misunderstood, frankly, like in ways both positive and negative. I really like your use of the word misunderstood because I think that... I get really frustrated whenever a conversation turns to people always go like, why did I not know this? I was like, "Mm, you probably don't know because you're not reading books. So that's your own personal, you know. The top line issue. Right. The top line (laughs) issue is that like people don't read. So if if an issue is like new to you, and this is not like to shame anyone. It's like if an issue is new to you, it just means that it's probably new to you. Mm -hmm. Um, There is like literally too much content. And that's like one strain. But I think that the thing that has been like a very pervasive feeling of um you know like some low level kind of despair for me is that everything that i think i know i am understanding in a new way and there's something both like very freeing about that and also terrifying i was taught this in like a mass education kind of situation what are you trying to tell me that it's you know i did not understand it correctly and i've formed assumptions and entire worldviews based on information that was you know in context like not correct I am really deeply appreciative that women historians, uh, and I even feel complicated saying like women historians because I'm like, they're historians. But the truth is that having a different perspective also means that they get to do their work and they get to fix everyone else's work. Get to. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's something that I've just been thinking a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot about. Both I'm like, okay, this is freeing. And also, wow, I know nothing. I've also been thinking about the work that these historians are doing in the context of the kind of debate and conversation about textbooks in, in public education specifically. Um, my uh, former former slash forever work wife, Dana Goldstein, who is now a New York Times reporter, wrote an article a couple of weeks ago about um, the vast differences in textbooks, depending on like where you're reading it. And sometimes that's even technically the same textbook from the same publisher, but they calibrate it to different states. And I feel like that is speaking to what you're saying about like, oh, there are just so many gaps in everyone's knowledge. And I think that is especially true when it comes to the baseline knowledge that we provide students in this country. And so I, I think that especially because the subjects of these books are all things that are mentioned in like history textbooks in in this country, for example, it makes it all the more important that 
these historians are doing the work to kind of say, okay, I know you know these three lines from, you know, what you had to learn at whatever point you learned American history, but guess what? There is more. Well, first up, I spoke to Erica Armstrong Dunbar, who's the author of She Came to Slay, The Life and Times of Harriet Tubman. And I this book is fascinating for many, 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 many reasons. Because One, it's hyper accessible. Um, and also... I, you know, Harriet Tubman is one of those people that I'm like, I know Harriet Tubman. I know Harriet Tubman. I'm a black person. I know Harriet Tubman. Like, I know her. Uh, and it turns out I did not know her. Wow. And um, I'm so, so, so glad that I read this because I think that, you know, that that feeling is so familiar. I'm just thinking like, okay, I know this name. I, you know, it it exists for me on this multiple levels of understanding. Having someone like really interpret the the primary sources and give you a new understanding of actually like what this person's life means and what it means in the context of today was mm. so, was such a powerful read for me. So here is Erica Armstrong Dunbar. Erica Armstrong Dunbar, she came to slay the life and times of Harriet Tubman. Ah, oh, the title, the <laughs> title alone. How did you decide on that? Yeah, you know, it was really the the sort of brainchild of my fabulous editor publisher Don Davis and we knew that the film was going to be released on Harriet's life in 2019 and so we thought it was uh, really kind of a good time to rethink Harriet Tubman and what I wanted to do was to try and present a fresh kind of more modern look at Tubman Tubman as a woman, as a mother, as a as a lover, as a warrior, as an underground railroad conductor, as a Civil War soldier. and But I wanted to do it in a way that could reach different audiences and, and basically people of different ages, generations. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, I want to tell this, her story in a way that would resonate with kind of younger women women who are thinking about the the power that they have inside of themselves that needs to be unleashed. And maybe I was watching Beyonce's Lemonade, maybe <laughs> I wasn't. Um, but <laughs> it sort of came to me that, you know, every time that Tubman went down south to Maryland to set people free, that each time she was coming to slay. And that's how the title sort of came about. Mm. I I love that you said that you wanted to portray her as all these different things, because I think that when I think about historical figures that are kind of in, in that same strata as she is, we basically canonize them, right? And then they don't get to be humans. They are stand-ins for all sorts of things, which is very well deserved. But I think that you so successfully made her into a human being which I think is, you know, it's important for so many reasons. And to me, at least it's important because she's a black woman and Mm -hmm. black women are, you know, it's like you get to be everything for everyone else, but can you, are you a human being at all? Mm -hmm. And I'm just like really curious how, how that process went for you because it is a page turner and there's so much life into it that I think that it is so different from your, you know, kind of stereotypical history book. Yeah. Thank you for saying that because I'm a historian, I'm a writer, and I believe deeply that history should be accessible to everyone. 
you shouldn't have to have a PhD to read it, to understand it, and to feel like, you know, you're a part of or connected to that history. And so that's kind of what I wanted to do for Tubman. I mean, there are, you know, some good biographies of of Tubman. Nothing that's been written within the past, like, 15 years or so. And what I wanted to do, exactly what you, you were just saying, the sort of think about Tubman through a different lens. We're so used to kind of the image of Tubman, kind of an older woman, head covered, hands clasped, you know, slightly, slightly bent over. And that's not the image of Tubman that I think we all need to have in our minds when we think about her. I mean, in actuality, when she was working as a conductor on the Underground Railroad, she was young. She was in her, you know, in her 30s and, and early 40s. And of course, we don't really have photos of her until after the Civil War. But I wanted us to think about her as a child. Who was Harriet Tubman when she was five and called Araminta Ross? That was the name she was given. Think about her as a teenager, as a young woman in love and as a young woman who made the decision to to flee, to flee slavery, and then Mm. also make the same decision to come back time and time again. I wanted us to think about her and, and love, who she loved, how she loved. She loved hard. When you think about, you know, who she, that she came back for her entire family so many times, risking her own life, that, you know, that that's love. And also thinking about her post, you know, kind of her life post-slavery, which most people don't do. It's sort of like, oh, the Civil War ends and that must be the end of the story. Well, it, it really wasn't. And that's mm. that was part of the process of trying to get people to think about her, but also, you know, through all of these stages, but to do it in a way that connects the reader. So I, I used phrases in the different sections of the book that would hopefully connect a younger generation. So, you know, there's there's a section called Call Me Mrs. Davis, right, which was about Tubman remarrying post-slavery, and to think about her relationship with her second husband. So there were different ways. I also worked closely with an illustrator because we don't have photos of Tubman prior to the late 1860s. I was like, okay, I want the reader to be able to visualize her. Let's have an illustration of her as a child. What was it Mm -hmm. like to be enslaved as a child? So those were some of the techniques I used to help readers think about Tubman differently. Yeah, you know, and one of the running themes in the book is really about the dollar value that's placed on her and her family. And it's something that has stayed with me for a long time, especially because we keep having this conversation about, you know, is she going to replace Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill? Who's the president that's going to do that? And I just thought that it was such a, um, it was such a powerful way of, making the reader understand that, you know, American capitalism is at work, like, since mm-hmm. the, since before slavery, and really thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And I just, like, I would love to hear your thoughts about making a decision to, to have that be a theme in the book. Yeah, well, of course, all the conversation about Tubman on the 20 was kind of in the front of my mind, and I can, 
I would bet $20 that this current administration will not put her on the $20. <laughs> really? Bill. You don't think this is the administration yeah, that's going to give us Tubman's? I wow, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> I'd bet more than 20 on that. Um, I'd bet you a Thomas Jefferson <laughs> that you're wrong. <laughs> I'll bet you a Ben Franklin. Um, <laughs> Because we've had that conversation so much and because there was so much interest in having Tubman on currency that, you know, I'm hoping that we all just sort of take a moment and maybe the book, maybe the film, maybe other conversations will help us think about what it means to put someone who was enslaved, someone who had a value, a monetary value attached to their body, what does it mean to put them on currency? And and that's not me saying I don't want Tubman on the 20 at all. It's simply saying that I'm hoping that we have more conversations about the way we attach value to black life, whether Mm -hmm. that's enslaved people in the 19th century, uh, $100 uh, runaway ads for, for Tubman, or if it's the way that um, school districts place amounts of money on the students that they're um, going to teach for a year and how those values change depending upon your, your zip code. You know, I, I think that I wanted us to, to think deeply about the value of black life, both in slavery and in freedom. And in many ways, all the conversation about Tubman on, on the 20 was a sort of perfect portal into that conversation. Yeah, it's just, that's such a powerful thing to hear you talk about, that someone, you know, who probably would have been bought for a couple of those $20 bills might be the face of them. And so I just, I really appreciate that in reading this book, so many conversations that are in kind of like the fore of our culture are also coming alive because every couple of years, I feel that there is a resurgence in interest about Harriet Tubman, it's like there was the movie, there was this $20 bill conversation, there are so mm-hmm. many things. And yet I am still struck by the fact that she is not a figure that every single American knows, which is a thing that our school system should probably fix. Yeah, I, I was, um, <laughs> it was funny, My I have a 15-year-old son and he showed me one of these little TikToks, these little videos that mm. all the young people are doing these days. And um, it was supposedly a college campus. It was supposedly Harvard. I have no documentation about that. But this person was going around, a, a young person, and asking students on the campus, holding up a picture of Harriet Tubman, saying, do you know who this person is? And they said, yeah, that's, you know, Rosa Parks or Sojourner Truth. Like they were everybody but Harriet Tubman. <laughs> and so what was really interesting is that when the students didn't show the picture, but said, do you know who Harriet Tubman is? They all said, oh, yes, she's a conductor on the Underground Railroad. And that was it. Like, there was no additional information. And so what I wanted to do in this book in particular is to challenge people who think they know Tubman, like to ask them, do you really know who Harriet Tubman was? Like, Mm -hmm. do you really know? And... Um, because I know that the answer to that is no, not really, <laughs> that they think they know, because it's the, you know, the one page in their high school history textbook that had a picture of her at the top of the corner and probably one of Frederick Douglass somewhere nearby, too. And that was kind of it. 
Yeah, you know, I think like one of the things about the history of her that I have kind of never understood, and I think that, you know, maybe the movie also contributes to this, is this this idea that she was guided by these visions and the images that predicted her future. She would have dreams about where the danger was and what guided her her actions. And a thing that I really appreciate that you did in the book, and I say this as someone who is not religious and not spiritual at all, but that you encourage readers to take this leap of faith, you know, that she Mm. was taking Mm -hmm. and really thinking about like one's life with a sense of purpose. Mm. I don't know that that has really just like stayed with me from, Mm. from, from this reading experience and really trying to see like, what does it mean to have this record of a historical woman? And also what does it mean for the paths that we are all supposed to take in our lives. And so I would like, I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about that leap of faith and also like what you were trying to accomplish, like Mm -hmm. writing that way. I wanted so much for us to see Harriet through Harriet's eyes. And Harriet Tubman really, she fashioned herself as a servant leader. She really did think that, and she said this over and over again uh, later in her life when she told about her, her trials and tribulations and her triumph as well, she always placed her belief in God, her deep faith at the sort of front of everything. She didn't like to take credit for all that she did. She was a, someone who definitely liked to work behind the scenes, but she always put her God first in her life. As a historian, I'm challenged sometimes by my peers to think as secularly as possible, right? We don't want to bring kind of religion or spirituality into, because it's subjective, it's, it's whatever. And I feel like, well, if you're writing a biography or something that is biographical of someone, you really must understand where they came from and sort of thinking about the power of Christianity for enslaved people in the 19th century. You know, that was what got people up every day. And it was what got people to survive and live. And Tubman was no different from that. She really did, of course, in terms of modern medicine, when we know that Tubman was struck in the head, that she had a skull fracture, from an overseer who threw a a two-pound weight that collided with her skull. We know that that trauma uh, in this day and age would have been diagnosed in in different ways, right? And that she had these spells that came after this trauma, and she called them sleeping spells or what have you. Of course, we would probably call them seizures today, right? Mm -hmm. And we probably, uh, there would be all kinds of diagnoses attached to her. She saw it, of course, as an event that triggered her closeness to God. She saw these seizures as moments where she was closer to God and had some kind of connection, inspiration, and really that he spoke to her through these visions and through these sleeping spells or seizures. And so because she believed that, and spoke to it her entire life, it would be, I think, really problematic not to include that. But I also, 
you know, the same moment where she has this kind of religious awakening or this deep connection to God, we also need to think about that moment as something that made Tubman a woman who lived with a disability the entirety of her life. And we never think about that. We don't think about Harriet Tubman as someone who lived with a disability, but she did. Ah, I love that. And also, I, uh, you know, I love that you're teaching. It just makes me feel that sometimes um, the right people are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing with their lives. So, no, you can you. come tell my students that, you know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. They are um, they are so lucky. I just um, I feel like I'm getting emotional. It just like made me very emotional to read that. It was like a very lovely read. So thank you so much for writing that. Thank you. You know, I feel kind of um, fortunate and obligated as someone who's decided to kind of dedicate their lives to telling the stories of black people, specifically of enslaved women. I realize how privileged I am to be in a position to to write their stories and to to move them from the margins to the center of what we call the American narrative. And with that privilege also comes an obligation to say their names. Thank you so much for joining us on Call Your Girlfriend this week. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, next up, I spoke with Alexis Coe, who we are both a fan of. She's the author of You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington. And uh, I love this book for all the aforementioned reasons about kind of correcting history textbook narratives. But I also love this book on kind of a meta level because it is Alexis really critiquing the way that historians, the predominantly male historians of the presidents have gone about their work and the ways in which they are kind of trying more to impress each other and be in dialogue with each other than get the history right. And I am I am really here for that layer on top of just all the juicy details about George Washington. So here is uh, Alexis Coe. Alexis, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me back. Okay, first and foremost, why George Washington for you? <laughs> Look, I'm as surprised as anyone. <laughs> I I love presidential history. I'm a political historian. The thing with Washington is that every single time I picked up a biography, I got very little from it. I didn't get any closer to him. And I kept noticing that they all had the same preface, which would say, he's the marble man. He's too perfect to be real. And first of all, you, you never call a subject perfect. That's really strange. It seems like admitting laziness. <laughs> It's it's admitting it's also admitting an intense bias mm -hmm. um, that you are you are revering this subject. So how can you possibly really look at him in a truthful manner? And so I started checking primary sources because that's what you do as a historian. You know, I checked receipts, and their interpretation simply did not match up with what I was seeing in the archives. And I realized, oh God, I have to write I have to write a book on this guy. <laughs> there's a few things I love about this. And one is I love that you kind of given a name to this 
group of male historians who have written all the definitive biographies of Washington, and you call them the thigh men. I would love for you to explain that. <laughs> the thigh men of dead history. The thigh men is what I called Washington biographers who have been, I just don't want to say like a lot of them have been male. They have been almost entirely male. In the last hundred years, there have been three women to write a biography on him, including me. And I am the only woman in the last hundred years, the only woman historian to write a book about him. And it shows And the thing with these men is they're just obsessed with his masculinity, which I thought was a foregone conclusion. It's George Washington. He was, he's the general, like he won the war. It's, you know, end of story. Why do we need to obsess over that? Very quickly, I realized that they love his thighs. They drive them wild. And they talk about them so much. They talk about them in like really homoerotic ways. They talk about the way he grips a horse. They just, they'll spend like paragraphs on it. It's totally inappropriate. It's like, look up here, he's got eyes. (laughs) I think because of this obsession with masculinity, that was so ridiculous and it allowed me to have fun with a subject that a lot of people don't think is fun. And I think if history is boring, it's the historian's fault. If you can have fun with a subject and you can sort of see that angle, then you have to ask yourself, okay, if they're obsessed with masculinity, what are they missing? Because they're so monomaniacal about it. And I realized that they had zero interest in women, which is not like a huge realization. But to the point that they had sort of broken a lot of historian rules and they had repeated these myths through generations, we're talking hundreds of years, men had just been repeating these same stories about, for example, Washington's mother or about his wife. His mother was terrible and tried to thwart him. His wife was perfect and an angel. You know, we, we all envision Martha Washington wearing that bonnet and as an older kind lady. I don't agree. Well, it's funny because when I when I hear you say it that succinctly, I think, oh, that totally fits with this hyper-masculine narrative. It's like he had to overcome his overbearing mother and then like found this kind of perfect helpmeet for the rest of his life. Like those almost fit these like archetypal ways of viewing femininity, like on the flip side. Absolutely. Instead of saying, look, Washington was his mother's eldest son, which means that in the time period, because she was a widow, he was essentially her head of house. And she had to defer to him, this like 11-year-old kid, on a lot of issues. And they were partners. And then when he grew up and she you know, said, go out there into the world, she helped him become who he was going to be. And the thigh men act like she thwarted him at every turn. What was interesting to me is not only what I could see, which was a strange obsession with his masculinity and calling him a great man, but also, you know, we're looking at someone who was raised by a single mother who had strong relationships with women. You know, we we would talk about that with ease, um, say with Barack Obama or, you know, this is a bad example, but Bill Clinton. But why don't we talk about Washington in that way? Because it somehow emasculates him, I think, in their eyes. Mm. You also mentioned that there are other stories that these historians kind of just perpetuated. And it made me think about the conversation that we had on this show about 
the Odyssey and what happens when like a book where the translations have been built on men's interpretations of something for years are suddenly reconsidered by a woman and doesn't necessarily mean that the new insights are gendered. I mean, I know you picked this example about the women in his life, but I also think that one thing I loved about your book is like, it is just in general, a fresh take on some of these myths that those of us who grew up in the US reading really boring, bland history textbooks inherited. And I wonder if you could talk about a few other myths that you were able to bust in the course of writing this book. I think that there's there's the impression that George Washington was a great general, and he simply wasn't. He <laughs> lost more battles than he won. And so the question is, one, why do all these books spend so much time talking about the revolution and all the battles which he wasn't that great at and also wasn't really present for a lot of them? Most of the generals were in their tent, you know, on the hill looking down on a battlefield. He certainly, you know, rode his horse around and occasionally got involved. And, and so in his younger days, he fought. But the leader of the revolution isn't out there, you know, on the front lines. So the question is, what was he doing and how did we win? And he was a great strategist in the court of public opinion. He tasked people in each colony. They're sort of in between colonies and, and states at this point. And he said, you know, gather these stories about British cruelty. And in particular, I'm interested in stories about women who are alone or with older relatives because their male relatives are, are fighting in the war. I want to know what's happening to them when British soldiers are around because we have to show the world that they are cruel. And it's also really good propaganda because this war wasn't a year. This war went on for, you know, seven years. And you really have to keep people engaged. And you can't do that with just the initial thrill of rebelling. You need to sustain that. And so there were a lot of incredible stories that he recognized and sort of pushed. Congress would put out these like periodicals and then those would make their way around the country. He also was a spy master and he loved it. And he was really good at it because he knew how to sort of hold his tongue. And he would get really involved in the drama of it. And I thought, oh, my God, this is so much fun. Why aren't we learning about him as a propaganda master, as a spy master? You know, you learned a lot of that through his story. And I just I thought, you know what? No battles. I'm going to give them a chart so they know what's what if they want. And there's a sort of chart at the beginning of each section in each chapter in order to situate the reader and give them the tools they need to feel like, okay, I understand presidential history. I understand this era. I understand the founders. And now I want to know what Washington was doing at this moment. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because that feels like such a more... It feels like of, of such modern interest. Like there are way more people who are out here trying to shape narratives and do PR than there are people being generals in the year 2020, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. I had no idea that he would be this relevant now. It's incredibly relevant because a lot of his fears are being realized. Washington had two fears. He feared the rise of partisanship. There were no political parties at the time. And so he created 
the cabinet that wasn't in the constitution he created it and he you know built this team of rivals with jefferson and hamilton going at each other but of course that fight spilled out into the street and so that was the connection like oh the partisanship started with washington it was his worst nightmare and he sort of inadvertently you know helped it formalize and the other thing that's really interesting is his farewell address is almost entirely about foreign influence and about the risk and how foreigners can put men who are actually just after their own interests, who are corrupted in the highest office, they'll become rich with power and they'll be serving foreign entities because they need to continue to do that to perpetuate the cycle in order to hold on to power. Oh man, (laughs) wow. I know, right? A shock of recognition. Like too close, too close to the bone. (laughs) Is there a sort of fact you uncovered or a moment in this process where you were truly, truly shocked? Like something you had really come to hold true from reading all these books that you were like, oh my God, it's really just not accurate. (laughs) Yes. Oh my God. Here's the thing. Women historians have a lot of work to do. They have to recognize and introduce women who have been dismissed and excluded from their narrative. And then they have to check men's work because we find out, you know, what we think we know, we don't. The moment I realized that things were off came when I was reading Ron Chernow's biography. He's lauded as this great storyteller, and he is. And he describes two scenes. Both didn't check out when I went to the primary sources. And I confirmed this. I was so certain that I had to be wrong because he's like a Pulitzer Prize winner. I checked it with the Washington Papers. I checked it with Mount Vernon. They both confirmed that I was correct. He was wrong. He in order to be this great writer, you know, fudges. The first instance was when Washington was in his early 20s. And according to Chernow, Washington's mother shows up at Mount Vernon, his plantation, which I call a forced labor camp. And she is like a bat out of hell. She's so angry. She demands to know what his plans are. You know, he uses the phrase, she arrives like a wrath of God. And he goes on and on about the scene she makes. And I thought, my God, how embarrassing for Washington to have to report this to his general. So then I go to the archives and I look at this letter that Washington sent to his general. And it doesn't say that at all. It literally says, the arrival of a good deal of company among whom is my mother, alarmed at the report of my intention to attend your fortunes, which is just a misreading by Chernow. What he's saying is, you know, she's worried that I said I would work for you for free because I can't afford it. Oh, wow. (laughs) That was the first moment that blew my mind. That's really different than the wrath of God and the bat out of hell. And then the second thing was, Chernow claims that Washington's mom wrote to the Virginia Assembly and asked for a pension. They were giving older women and older people pensions, but particularly widows, because the war was hard on the older population. Inflation, you know, soldiers coming through, it was extremely stressful. They lost family. And so this was like a normal thing. But she never did that. She never wrote the letter. She definitely talked to her neighbors. Everyone talks to their neighbor in a crisis. And she was a strong personality, but she never wrote and asked for help. And of course, she wouldn't do that because her son is leading the war effort. He's famous. He's the most famous person in the world. It would be embarrassing for him. 
But Chernow says that she does. Oh, wow. And so he makes this case like, oh, she's so awful and you completely believe it. And it's wildly unfair. I, uh, I'm so happy you wrote this book. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, you kind of described, you said earlier, this is, these are things that are like expected of, or this is the role of the kind of woman historian who's coming in now after there have not been such critical examination of, you know, a figure like Washington on so many levels. I'm wondering if you feel like that is a burden, an opportunity. Do you resent it? Do you love it? Like, what are your, what are your feelings about occupying that space? All of the above. I think it's a great opportunity for young historians. And I mean, any historians who have felt like they've been boxed in or they couldn't get tenure if they didn't talk about a certain thing. It's also overwhelming because there's so much work to do. You have to find the women who need their stories told. You have to tell them correctly. They often don't have a lot of information in the archives. And then we have to apparently, you know, check men's work. And I do feel like that is... That's a little bit of a burden in that women will feel spread thin, but it's so important. You know, women and people of color need to take on presidential history. At the same time, you have the rise of 51st Women too, the badass ladies, you know, that sort of thing in those books, which come in, you know, the form of like 50 short paragraphs or something like that. They're useful to a certain extent. I think they're great for introducing people. But then, you know, you read those paragraphs and they're repeating the same thing that you could find in the first paragraph of the Wikipedia article. They're not adding anything. They're, they're often not told by historians. And so I just, that bums me out. So there's both so much opportunity and a lot of missed opportunity. Right. And also along that line, I know that you have a, I don't want to say special relationship because it has some sort of political like uh, foreign policy overtones, but um, a special relationship with the other historians that are on this week's show. And I wonder if you could talk about that. It's so exciting to be on the same episode with them. I blurbed Marsha's book. Erica blurbed my book. And then I put Erica in the George Washington TV series that comes out in late February on the History Channel that I made with Doris Kearns Goodwin. And the three of us, you know, we study really different things, but we're all really supportive of each other. We're in contact. We, you know, send each other. There's like a lot of heart emojis going on and we're just rooting for each other. And it's really lovely to be in the same episode with them because we, I would say that a lot of historians are friendly to each other. There's, you know, hashtag Twitter historians, but these are unique relationships. Mm. Alexis, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It was so nice. Thank you for your support. I have to say that the best feeling about reading this book on the purely superficial level, which my friends are so tired of hearing me say this, is that the feeling of saying, I'm reading a presidential biography when people (laughs) ask you what you're reading, is that I was like, oh, this is how dads feel like all the time. Mm, It's uh, the lumpy genes of the literary world. I know. I'm like, you know what? What a flex. (laughs) I I hope Alexis writes a biography of every single president so I stay in the business of feeling good about having read a presidential biography. Also, having a favorite presidential historian, love it. I know. I'm I'm telling you, this is what dads feel like all the time. I'm like, I, I get it now. I get it now. I have one. This is lit. <laughs> <laughs> uh. 
Okay, next up, um, I'm very excited about this interview because it was done by Jordan Bailey, producer here at Call Your Girlfriend. So just on a pure fan level, I'm excited to listen to it. And uh, Jordan talks to one of our faves, Marsha Chatlin, who's the author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. My name is Marcia Chatlin. I'm an associate professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown, and I'm the author of the new book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Wonderful. I was really excited to talk to you because my dad, my grandfather, and my grandfather's twin brother are all black McDonald's franchise owners. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Your book really, you know, it was squarely relevant to me. So, you know, I'm very familiar with McDonald's and with franchising and, like, how it works. But for our listeners who aren't as familiar, can you just start out by explaining what exactly a franchise is and tell us a little bit about the relationship between the corporation and the business owners? So when we think of franchising, franchises in the United States, we mostly think of fast food, your McDonald's, your Taco Bells, your Wendy's. But franchising is actually a model that's used in many businesses. So whether you work out at Orange Theory Fitness, or you get your hair done at Dry Bar, there are a lot of different types of franchise businesses. And I think that they are quintessentially American, because they offer the promise of the American dream, if you are obedient and follow the rules. But part of what I explore in franchise is that in African-American communities particularly, McDonald's has meant a lot of things that are distinct, meaning opportunities for African-American economic advancement, community building. There's some intersection with the civil rights movement. And so while there are many types of franchises in the United States, for African-Americans who are really trying to build something for themselves and their community, it can sometimes take on a totally different meaning. I'm really interested in the Black franchise owner experience, and a lot of this book is about that. Can you just give us the briefest history of what happened when McDonald's started pursuing Black franchisees in the late 60s and sort of why they did that and what motivated the push to get more Black business owners um, in McDonald's? Absolutely. So prior to 1968, McDonald's was very much a suburban brand that was targeting mostly white bedroom communities outside of cities. After Martin Luther King's assassination and the uprisings that happened as a result, some white business owners didn't want to do business in black communities. And there was a big federal push to develop black businesses as a response to some of the frustrations that people were feeling in the inner city. And so McDonald's realized that if they recruited African Americans, Americans to franchise stores in predominantly African-American communities, they could have a very loyal consumer base. And so in many ways, there's this perfect moment in which people are questioning what's the new direction for civil rights after King's assassination. The federal government is promoting business and McDonald's is seeing a consumer opportunity. So you write a lot about the hope that Black business ownership through franchising would sort of create a pathway to equality. Can you talk more about that and how things actually played out? So this is where the story gets particularly complicated. And so from the view of 1968 or 1969, a McDonald's seems like an incredible opportunity for a community that is losing a lot of retail business, that has struggled to find 
first jobs for youth that doesn't have a lot of opportunities for people to patronize a Black-owned business, this Mm -hmm. is an incredible solution. And it's backed by a lot of members of the civil rights establishment. I talk about in the book how people who are heroes of the civil rights movement, a lot of them pivoted to fast food franchising because it was considered the next step in Black freedom. But as the story unfolds, we discover that Fast food can only do so much. And while African-American communities are being left behind by federal anti-poverty programs, by community development resources, I argue that the franchise starts to take that role. So it is the place where people can meet. It is the place where people register to vote. It is the place where a person can find an advocate in the community. And I talk about how that's such a mixed relationship because at the end of the day, I'm a big believer that it is people power that gets things done and not corporations. I mean, I was surprised by a lot of that. I was surprised to see that Julian Bond actually was involved in franchising, that the NAACP took on some of the struggles that Black franchise owners were facing. You started to mention some of the ways that the government was failing Black communities in different ways that McDonald's stepped in. Can you talk more about some of the gaps that McDonald's filled that were left by the state? So for Black McDonald's franchise owners, they really saw themselves as part of a long tradition of Black business people playing that special role. So prior to the 1960s, when there's a little bit more federal protection for Black citizens, the Black business owner was the person who lent money to families, who ensured that there were college scholarships, who may have advocated on behalf of someone who had been arrested or in trouble with the law. And in some of those similar ways, I found in the book that these Black McDonald's franchise owners, even though some of them became very wealthy doing this, were still pretty connected to their customers. And so they could be depended upon in times of disaster to provide emergency food or they would be the ones who made sure that there were field trips for schools that had very little resources for kids. There was a big trend prior to the 1960s where McDonald's didn't hire women because they felt like this, it's like everything sexism. So like they, they were too <laughs> distracting, and I guess they would seduce everyone as they tried to serve them food. And so it was the <laughs> African-American business owners who actually brought black women into the stores as employees, and that helped a lot of families that needed dual incomes. And so I see this weird relationship between a fast food restaurant where in some communities it's just a place to buy a hamburger and in the black community it becomes the center of activities that again I argue because of racism can't be met by the state. You started to touch on this, but I was really interested in the chapter where you talk about the uprisings in L.A. after Rodney King. And you talk about how there were McDonald's restaurants in the community that were Black-owned that were, you know, untouched during the uprisings. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this is like a famous story that circulates in a lot of business textbooks. And I hear people tell me the story all the time. I've heard black franchise owners tell the story. I've heard McDonald's executives um, tell the story. Essentially, after the uprisings, after Rodney King was beaten by police officers and the officers were acquitted, McDonald's put out a statement when things started to quiet down in L.A. that none of their stores that were African-American franchised were hit in the uprising. And I thought that was such a strange thing to say because Mm -hmm. it suggested that there was so much goodwill for McDonald's and black people and that this goodwill started in the 1960s that McDonald's was kind of like 
writing about itself like it was a civil rights hero. And I was like, this is kind of a strange tone to take. McDonald's writes itself into the story of civil rights immediately after Martin Luther King is assassinated. And what's been kind of brushed out of the frame is the fact that McDonald's was the target of a lot of sit-in activism in the 1960s. Of um, targeting because they had, you know, separate ordering booths or black people refused service or couldn't work there. But that history kind of got erased. And I feel like they just were able to rewrite themselves into this new narrative because of the success of black franchise owners. Yeah, can you actually talk a little bit about the boycotts and the um, the sit-ins at McDonald's? I remember the story about the McDonald's in Pine Bluff in Arkansas. So part of the fight to create federal protections against discrimination and public accommodations, which led to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, where activist groups like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and um, CORE, the Congress on Racial Equality, they would do sit-ins, like we've seen some of the iconic footage from Greensboro in 1960. And people would go into places where they would be denied service, and they would just sit there, and they would take so much abuse from racist crowds and from the police to prove a point about you know, how unfair this was. And so for most Americans, they associate that kind of activism with people sitting on lunch counter stools. But what I found is that McDonald's was a target for this throughout the South. And there's this incredible story of this woman who's part of an activist group. They go into McDonald's to challenge their racist serving practices. And the manager closes the restaurant, locks everyone in. The protesters then realize that they've turned off all of the air conditioning and they're just like sweltering in there. And they see a mob outside and they're not sure what's going to happen. One young woman who was part of the protest, someone throws ammonia at her face. I mean, the intensity of this type of protest and it's to access something like a McDonald's gives us a lot of pause. And so much of the story of civil rights that young people are introduced to is Rosa Parks and buses and then lunch counters and then everything's fine. But all of those things seem really in the past. And I loved the opportunity to kind of bring McDonald's into the frame of that story because it's something that I think has really been lost. But there's something really powerful and poignant to think about how McDonald's was actually this contested space for so many years. Right. And I'm I'm curious about that, too, because clearly it was a contested space and there were a lot of problems going on there. But at the same time, you wrote about um, how, you know, during the Jim Crow era, Black Americans couldn't go out to eat. They couldn't eat in restaurants. And if they did, there was often a lot of public humiliation associated with that. And so... Am I correct that McDonald's and other fast food restaurants sort of provided an opportunity for Black Americans to eat out in public? Yeah. So after the rise of fast food in the 1970s and when they started to target African-American customers, you know, I think it's so easy for us to dismiss something like fast food because we can think of it as not special today because it's everywhere. But Mm -hmm. I often tell people, you know, think about what it must have been like in 1970 for an African-American who had been terrified to go to restaurants because they don't know how they would be treated, 
who has only enjoyed about six years of federal protection to go places, Mm -hmm. to be able to walk into McDonald's, order something, and then know that it will be okay. And so a lot of the early advertisements, a lot of the marketing of McDonald's to black communities was that you can come here and you won't have any problems. When I've been on the road for this book tour, it's so interesting the number of older African Americans who remember the first time going to a McDonald's. This woman shared a story with me recently about how her grandma learned how to make ice cream so that her grandkids and her children never had to stand at a colored window to get ice cream from the local ice cream shop. And she said, I remember the first time I went to a McDonald's and got a milkshake, and it wasn't a big deal. And those are the types of ways that I really want to be empathetic and sensitive about people's consumer choices that can be so easily judged. Right. Um, I'm interested in your framing of how McDonald's became black, um, because there's this sort of stereotype about the relationship between McDonald's and the black community that that does actually have some truth to it. It feels like McDonald's, more than any other fast food restaurant, has this sort of special relationship to blackness. How did that happen? So when I talk about McDonald's being black, Sometimes people push back and they're like, but everyone eats McDonald's. And I'm like, yes, everyone eats McDonald's, but it doesn't mean the same thing. And I think Mm -hmm. because McDonald's found so much success in selling to African Americans in the early 1970s, they realized that some of the aesthetic choices and some of the language and the music and the celebrities that they use to market to black people, they could use for broader audiences. So there's a way that the McDonald's commercial uses some of what they would call crossover strategies on the early side. They're really the first fast food restaurant to do direct appeals to African Americans and see it successful. And then Burger King and other fast food companies follow suit. But I think the reason why um, McDonald's is also racialized as black is because in black communities, a lot of things happen at the McDonald's. And so because of sometimes a lack of resources for places for senior citizens or young people to hang out, it becomes a hangout spot. It is a place that you see a lot of extracurricular activities um, being promoted, whether it's gospel choir tour shows or um, their sponsorship of athletics, I think, also played a large part of it. The McDonald's All-American basketball team is a very important accolade for young athletes. And so there's this way that it kind of tethered itself to things in the popular culture that are Black that allowed people to see it through that prism. So this book is deeply, deeply researched. <laughs> um, I'm actually curious, how how long did it take you to do all the research for this book? Um, 9.3 million years. (laughs) I've been obsessed with this. That's the thing. Like, I get these fixations and then the rabbit hole is deep. Um, I think it took about, I would say, about four to five years of visiting archives and talking to people and thinking through um, the research. If I had my way, I would have written like 10 volumes, like one for every (laughs) year um, of some aspect of McDonald's. But I had my editor was like, you've got to cut this short. But I think (laughs) it has to stop somewhere. (laughs) It has to stop. But I think I, I wrote this book in response to what I thought was a lot of negative um, judgment, particularly of black people and the way that they ate. And so sometimes when people pick up this book, they think it's going to be about food deserts and it's going to be about health disparities. But it really is a social history of how we got there. And 
it's also just a plea to just be compassionate before we judge mm-hmm. why a person is consuming fast food or why they're having their children eat fast food or why, despite all of the compelling arguments about, you know, patronizing one business over the other, people might make a choice that we don't understand. I really, really want the food justice movement to think more broadly about race, about their tone when thinking about communities of color, and also to understand that our allegiance and our loyalty to fast food sometimes has very little to do with the food and a lot to do with a set of feelings that this industry can actually make us feel. After doing all this research, I'm curious what your relationship to McDonald's is. You know, before I started this book, I I think this may be 15 years ago, um, I just kind of stopped eating a lot of fast food. I ate it all the time. I was in graduate school. I didn't have a lot of money. It was so convenient. But I started to get a little concerned by just how dependent I was on fast food. So I just stopped kind of mm-hmm. eating it. But I still adore it. And <laughs> I want to make that very clear <laughs> that I have over the years found myself in a class position where my diet is more varied because I have more choices and more access. Mm-hmm. And I still find fast food fascinating. I still think McDonald's fries are the absolute best. I don't want anyone to come for me for that statement. I still (laughs) think the promotional materials are interesting. I love looking at Happy Meal toys. And so Mm -hmm. I feel like McDonald's has been with me through the life cycle. I ate it a lot as a kid and a young person. And I'm now, it's an object um, of study for me and fascination. And it's a place where I can have a lot of my nostalgia. And so this is, I think I probably embody the point I tried to make in the book, that there are a lot of ways to have relationships with McDonald's that have nothing to do with the food. Jordan's voice is so soothing also. It's like yummy voices, you know, her and Gina. So producers. Love to hear it. (laughs) History, we've covered it all. Mm. You don't need a textbook. We're done here today. See you on the internet. Yeah, see you at our next meeting. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. Bye.